0: Coming up on this week's show, a huge monkey island adventure is coming. Capcom's 40th anniversary plans revealed. And we go back to the BBS with Owl's Geek Lounge. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books that's highly recommended, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, The Expanded Edition, with 70 extra pages, additional text, 60 new images, and this covers the history of Mac gaming. And a reminder of the important role that the Mac played in the history of video games. Check it out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay and if you're working on a project right now you know they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost fast turnaround quality boards and they do services like 3d printing and injection molding and they're massive supporters of the retro community so get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 382, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games. You remember those endless summers? Jumping on your BMX with your friends, going down to your local video game shop, or maybe boots and picking up a new Spectrum game with your pocket money. Maybe that morning when you unwrapped your Super Nintendo on your birthday, or maybe looking forward to buying that latest PlayStation magazine and popping that demo disc into your PS1. Anyone else just got like goosebumps at those thoughts right now?
1: I live for those moments still. <laughs> like I would love it if I could, you know, go into the local news agents and get a, a demo disc from a PlayStation. Or even for the Amiga,
0: you know, (laughs)
1: going well old school. Well,
0: well, this is the closest thing that we have to that, isn't it? Getting to reminisce for an hour-ish every single Friday. And of course, bringing it up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro and bringing you a special guest on the podcast as well. And uh, I'm really pleased that we're doing the show this week as well, because um, I've been and went holiday for about 10 days. Got back to Nottingham, where we record the podcast's a bit earlier on today. And obviously, I mean, when I'm away, I was kind of keeping an eye on what's been happening globally in the news. You know, you can't avoid those BBC and Sky News pop-ups on your phone. And I'm sure everyone's seen the, the horrible news that happened in Nottingham um, here in the UK this week. So, uh, And it just made me think, though, that that's the reason that we do this podcast. Because in some ways, I was like, you know, is it appropriate to kind of continue and be happy and talk about things, you know, when everyone's so miserable and sad about something? But really, that's what this podcast is, isn't it? It's escape from or the horribleness in the world for me.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite tough because that was like where it happened was around two minutes from my mm. uh, kind of family home. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really shocking to have something like that happen. But the best thing is a kind of escape and, you know, hooking up with you lads, being able to talk about yeah. stuff, being able to kind of meet online as well and uh, have support your mates and play some video games together.
0: Because we know there's, you know, horrible things happen all around the world every day. But hopefully whatever's going on in your life, happy or sad, I mean, this show is a bit of escapism every week. So we hope you enjoy it. And, uh, you know, thank you. for We had a few messages, people asking if we're all right, you know, because obviously that, that horrible event happened in our city. But we're all good. And you are know, obviously going to continue with the show as normal this week. And uh, actually this week we're going to be talking about something that is something really exciting um for me in particular. Because when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, obviously you got your mates over and you did some, you know, couch gaming, as we call it today. But there was always something really really magical about reading about these mythical things called bulletin board systems. You know, BBS is where you could actually dial up someone else's computer and interact with other people. That just seemed like magic, didn't it? It's
2: it's amazing, the bulletin board systems, like the whole culture behind them. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of like a little private kind of internet because these machines were in people's houses. They were in their bedrooms. So, you know, people... Would get extra phone lines to kind of have their BBSs hooked up and uh, get more users on them, but also there was a whole art scene and there were like these massive multiplayer games that we've talked about. You know, um, there were a lot of people playing mods, and um, it, it, it was a really interesting kind of time. And uh, you're you're going to be doing the whole interview this week, aren't you, Dan?
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to be chatting to um, a bulletin board historian. Now, this is Al from the youtube channel al's geek lab who's done i think by far the most in-depth coverage of the bbs i mean obviously there's the one that jason scott did uh, the documentary uh, for bbs
2: documentary which yeah is absolutely amazing if you've not seen that check that out but i remember you linking me this uh al's geek lab on and i was like oh my god more bbs stuff
0: yeah, and he's done such a good job on this. I mean, it's actually been about two and a half years he's been working on this. Wow. And he's put it out in like eight separate parts. And it's kind of broken down into all the different elements of BBSs, like, you know, wares and ANSI artists and people who used to run their own boards, sysops, that kind of thing as well. And each part of it is, you know, some of them are like an hour-ish long. Um, really, really good if you want to get a proper in-depth look, not only at the history of BBSs, but also the scene today as well. Because it's quite interesting. I mean, I remember first becoming aware of bulletin board systems when probably when I was about 8 years old. I remember my auntie, she gave me a load of um old computer magazines from the early 80s called Input. Now, these were magazines that basically give you type-in listings for, you know, the BBC Micro, the uh, Amstrad, all the big computers, you know, in Britain of the early 80s. And she gave me a bunch of second-hand copies of this when I was about seven, eight years old. So they are a few years old at this point. But even in there, they were talking about um, these online services where you could dial up, and they were talking about the fact that one day we'll be able to do shopping, or you'll be able to dial up this service and check out your local cinema listings. And I was like, no way is that going to happen in my, in my lifetime Obviously, it came around pretty quick after, and then um, you know even stuff like Amiga format they used to cover you know bulletin board services. And I don't know if you remember Ravi when you'd boot up a be a naughty Amiga game, you'd often get these uh these where yeah call our, call our
2: worldwide boards and uh, yeah yeah I think I think you're right Dan like people people never thought Radio Times or something would um, <laughs> you know it's, it's cease to be as popular and the the number one kind of source yeah it's. It's really interesting, that whole culture. And I remember actually seeing on the um, BBS documentary, this one, Sysop, uh, who was basically saying he didn't want anyone swearing on his computer. Um, so he'd get really angry if anyone connected and mm. left a swear word on the message board because he's like, we'll have no swearing in this household. You know, It's really kind of like homemade and uh, I kind of love the whole, the whole concept behind it. So I'm really interested to hear this
0: episode. So that's right. I mean, you make a good point there, because if you visit a website today, you're looking at something ser- you know, served off Amazon AWS or something like that. But if you dial the bulletin board, I mean, the, you know, the, your phone line would ring and your floppy disk drive would whir up and your machine would spring to light, even if it was like three o'clock in the morning, often when you, were, you know, in bed next to it trying to sleep. That's how personal it was. It was someone jumping onto your computer at home. Essentially surfing through your files. I mean, you know, it was very, very personal. And today, I mean, the BBS scene, believe it or not, is probably more active now than it's been since the mid 90s. So and Al actually runs his own BBS again. I mean, he used to run one back in the day. But I talked to him about the current scene and uh, obviously loads of history as well. So if you've got any interest in the BBS, maybe like us guys, you just kind of missed that era or... If you're in the thick of it, either way, you're going to find this chat really interesting. Al from Al's Geek Lab is going to be our special guest and he'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, before that, we like to bring it up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And uh, even though I've been on holiday and I told you guys, I'm taking a bit of a screen break, didn't I? So I'm going to check Facebook too much. I'm gonna stay out of it all.
2: You you, then- you tried to be a kind of a, a digital escape, but you know it's it's always tough, isn't it? These these things get you coming back, like phones and
0: all. Yeah. Well, I'm, I blame the people that tag me on Twitter for this one and <laughs> send me DMs because um, everyone knows. I mean, you might have heard you yeah, that I like a little video game called Monkey Island.
1: Yeah, I've
0: uh, I've heard that a couple of times on the show. Um, yeah,
1: you know, I've still not checked it out myself.
0: <laughs> like you like Resident Evil, I believe. I think I think it's pretty similar to that. Yeah, it's
1: a similar situation.
0: I don't think you've checked that out either, have you? Really? You need <laughs> well, to. Well, this swap could be a good excuse. Point, you know, your We, we games, do actually. Have have a, that's a good have a idea. Week,
2: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, that could be an after Hours episode. Uh, but this is really cool. Now, uh, obviously, I've been loving in a Return to Monkey Island, the new Monkey Island game that came out by Ron Gilbert, the original creator, um, a few months back. But now there is even more Monkey Island goodness coming out and this time it is a crossover with the rare game Sea of Thieves. Now, I was on holiday and I saw this pop up and I had to watch this trailer and I must admit, it gave me goosebumps because it's got the characters from Sea of Thieves at the start and they're kind of lost in the mist and then the mist clears and then in this trailer, you see Melee Island from Monkey Island and then the legendary Monkey Island music starts playing. Check this out
3: Welcome to the Scum Bar, the most notorious tavern on Melee Island. Wall-to-wall rogues and scoundrels.
0: <laughs> so tell me, which ship is right for you? A big ship? A
3: luxury ship? A ship with just a splash of je ne sais quoi? The legend of Monkey Island? You mean Governor Guybrush. But Freeport's not set foot out of that mansion for almost a year. Hey, what do you think you're doing? I told you, no autographs.
0: Now, straight away, I love the fact that they've got Dominic Amato, who's played Guybrush 3, you know, since the mid-90s, as the voice actor on this. And I don't know if you guys, have you guys played Sea of Thieves before? I've I've heard of it. You know, um, a lot of my
2: friends kind of play these new games, open-world ones. Um, Mm. I play Rust and there's a few other titles out there. Um, And Sea of Thieves seems like one of these ones where you all get together and you make a crew and then kind of make your own story. But um, mm. my understanding is that this is going to be DLC. So I don't know if it's going to work in the sense of it being like a quest that you do together as a co-op group in multiplayer or, or a more kind of single player. Because Monkey Island's always been a bit of a, a single player experience, hasn't it? So this might open it up into that uh, multiplayer world. And it's uh, interesting to to see that it's Lucasfilm games as well as Rare which uh, you know you don't often get that kind of collaboration.
0: Well, for me, I mean, I've got Sea of Thieves because they released it. It's Microsoft Studios, you know, obviously own Rare, and they, you know, they pretty much put all their games out. Don't the Joe on yeah. um, Xbox Game Pass? Yeah, they're they're all on there. And I did download this a couple of years ago. And It's one of those where I maybe booted it up for like two minutes and then thought, oh, I'll come back to that. And then a you know, like hundred other games have come along in the meantime and I didn't get around to it.
1: Yeah, I, I did, did the exact same thing. Downloaded Sea of Thieves and I've, I've never played it. But I've seen my in-laws play it. They really like it. And you're spot on Ravi. It's like a online multiplayer game where you play as pirates and, you know. Okay. yeah, you have kind of your crew. Like, I mean, you have yeah. your crew and you do quests and stuff and you sail the seven seas kind of thing.
0: So I
1: think Monkey Island's probably quite fitting.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, there's not many pirate kind of franchise games that spring to mind, but I mean, these are obviously two of the, the biggest ones. And it makes sense to do collaboration. And I mean, what I loved about it is, I mean, it does feel like a real love letter to Monkey Island. So you've got, you know, a lot of the familiar characters are in there. Um, you've got, you know, Stan, the, the boat salesman's in here. You've got Murray, the, the talking skull. Apparently Captain LeChuck pops up in here as well. You've got Elaine and, of course, Guybrush as well, um, who it turns out is the governor of, Mon- of MLA Island now, by the sounds of this. So you know, a little spoiler in the trailer it's there. It's interesting
2: to see that they're kind of licensing it out then because we hadn't seen uh, much Monkey Island stuff for years until the, the most recent game came out. And then this came out, and I'm kind of wondering what's next because... I know mm. Dan gets goosebumps if if they made a ring ring doorbell tone that was the Monkey Island song. <laughs> I can imagine you'd love it. Make it, it happen. Every- yeah, every time the door rings,
0: you do, 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 do. <laughs> my door, doorbell just goes. How appropriate! You fight like a cow. <laughs> that drives, like, go down well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this looks awesome. Apparently, it's going to be um, yeah, it's three free episodes that are coming out. So if you own, see if these already. By the sounds of it, it's going to be free. Or you know, I imagine if you got it on Game Pass, with that uh, one installment landing every month, starting on the twentieth of July. He did mention, obviously, we had Return to Monkey Island that Ron Gilbert made a couple of months ago interestingly he said that they didn't even run this past him he wasn't aware of this happening at all until he yeah. saw the trailer Yeah,
2: i can imagine they own the rights now so it just kind of goes yeah. out like you know they could skin or do stuff like the sims or whatever but i think the main point about this is that sea of thieves is an incredibly popular game at the moment especially yeah. with young people and they might not know the world of monkey island you know even the latest release that came out they might not be aware of or care of. But if some new content comes for Sea of Thieves and it's this cool Monkey Island thing, oh, what's this? And they'll look into the history of it and and maybe explore the older games and stuff.
0: Yeah, good shout. You could introduce Monkey Island to a whole new generation. So um it's gonna be available from the end of next month. Um three different parts coming and it is going to be free if you own the game already. So very excited to see that. And if you want to check out the trailer, I'll put that in our show notes. On your podcast app or at the retrohour.com. Now, I don't know how long you guys have played around with this website this afternoon. <laughs> how cool is this, Joe? Capcom are celebrating their 40th anniversary with essentially a digital museum and playable games on this awesome website.
1: Yeah, this is wicked, this is. I was playing it on my lunch break at work earlier on, so if my boss's work uh listening, definitely on my lunch break, wasn't playing around with it, you know. Later on in the day, or anything like that, and
0: new Excel played music. Yeah, played I know, and let you
1: look at you know Devil May Cry artwork and Resident Evil artwork. <laughs> but yeah, it's Capcom's 30th anniversary, uh, 40th anniversary. Uh, sorry, and they uh, they did their showcase uh, along with a lot of other big companies uh, this last weekend. And part of the celebration is this uh, incredible digital museum that they've done on their website. So essentially, you you can go on this website, and they've done like a whole Capcom like city
2: haven't they mm. and like, in, a, in a kind of farmville um yeah. silicon valley tv show <laughs> intro yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> look, yeah yeah it looks like one of these old uh
1: mobile games you know where you know like you say like farmville or something and uh, loads and loads of different things you can do on there you can go to all of like you know capcom's big franchises and it's really cool to see because of They haven't forgotten like some of the franchises that aren't really that big anymore, like Final Fights on there, you know, a lot of the retro ones. Obviously, Street Fighter 6 is a big thing at the moment. Big 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 section for like Monster Hunter, Resident Evil, Devil May Cry, some little like Dead Rising uh things on there, and even you know, Mega Man and stuff like that. But what I thought was really awesome, along with all the artwork you can go view, and there's some like never before, never seen before artist documents and stuff like that for a lot of these games and really cool high-res artwork scanned in for like uh resident evil like original artwork from the first resident evil like japanese game manuals and stuff like that some of um, some retro games are actually buried in the museum section as well so it took me a minute to find it um but if you go into the museum uh, which looks like raccoon city police department from resident evil which is fitting because that is actually a museum in the game um you go in there and there's actually a play tab and if you click on it You can actually play a couple of the retro games on there. So you can play Mega Man 1 and 2, Mega Man X, Street Fighter 2, and Final Fight. And you can play them in English or Japanese. Um, And it lets you view like the cartridge artwork and like all the instruction manuals and stuff like that. And I was playing Final Fight earlier on and it was running perfectly in my computer. Like it was a really, really good emulation. It is the Super Nintendo versions, it's not like arcade versions or anything like that but i think a real cool like look back at the last 40 years and like they haven't forgotten you know where they started with a lot of these games and stuff which i think is really cool
2: yeah i'm i'm looking at the moment and they've actually got the english and the japanese versions yeah on uh on the retro games which is pretty dope and you've got the like little systems that are kind of set up i just love how browsers these days are they're so good at kind of uh, you know playing games, and you could just have a console in your browser. It's it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, it's a very personal journey as well. I mean, I think, you know, one of my favorite bits of the website is you go into the uh, the CEO's office. Mm. So there's kind of the story of Kenzo Tsujimoto and he kind of talks about how he founded the company when he was 22 years old in 1983. And there's even, you know, his most memorable game of Street Fighter 2. Then you've got kind of a little pixelated video game version of him and you can follow him kind of down a slide and it kind of shows you all the landmarks of Capcom and a really interesting and a very nice visual way. To represent it all as well. Like you said, Ravi, I think it kind of reminds me in some ways of what we wish we could do with Flash 20 yeah, years ago. Yeah, it's got yeah. the Flash
2: vibes, definitely. But also I like the fact that you don't have to log in. Um, you know, yeah. a lot of these sites, you always have to sign up or log in or use your Facebook login or something like that. This one, you can just pick it up, go on the games. There's nothing getting chucked at you. Or, you know, it's it's very clean. I like it.
0: Yeah, and they've even got, um, <laughs> one thing that's on there right now, the Capcom Elections they're asking people to vote for the definitive Street Fighter 2 move. What, which one do you think it is? There's a couple of options on there as well. And, and if you, uh, you, can, you take part in that. It's got to be here. Yeah, oh, well, that's one of the options. And if you uh, if you vote on that as well, you get some uh, free Yoga Town wallpapers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're going to start an argument there. Uh, but you get some free wallpapers for your phone as well. And I think, you know, there's just so much in here. And there is, you know, a lot of Easter eggs kind of buried in there too and it is always nice to see a company you know it's a lot of these companies just kind of forward looking aren't they but I think it is always nice when they do celebrate their legacy and take the time to put together something as in-depth and feature-rich as this yeah I
2: wonder like some of the worst video game companies if, they, if their towns would be interesting just to visit you know like, ljn world
1: yeah, I, literally, the, uh, I was like scrambling kind of like, abandoned and
0: ljn <laughs> ljn world i'd be on there uh, but yeah capcom town it is on uh, online now to celebrate capcom's 40th anniversary so we've got a few hours to this weekend um, lots to look at on there and let us know if you find any easter eggs i'll link that up in our show notes as well are you were very excited about this next story? Um, I know you thought the the animation style on this was beautiful, Joe. This is a brand new Contra-like game called Iron Meat that's coming out later this year.
1: Oh, I thought this looked fantastic. This like this got me going, man. Like I was watching the trailer for this earlier on. Um, so this is Iron Meat. It's a Contra-style retro game that's coming to Steam on October seventeenth. So you know, run and gun platformer shooter. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful graphics. And uh, I was watching the trailer. And there's a lot of in-game cutscenes, like animated cutscenes. And the animation style in it really reminded me of like real Ghostbusters, you
0: know, the 80s Go- uh, Ghostbusters cartoon. Okay, And that will make sense in terms of the animation style, because real Ghostbusters, it was done in a Japanese studio at the same studio that made a lot of the anime oh, okay. and manga stuff back in the day. So that's uh, why that style looks like that. Oh,
1: I wasn't aware of that. Okay, that's
0: that's pretty yeah. cool.
2: Um, I was going to make a joke, but um, it's a family-friendly podcast, so I yeah, yeah. This uh, kind of <laughs> name, but um, it does, it does, it, it gives me Turrican vibes as well because I'm not yeah. that much of a of a contra person. But um, yeah, just the weapons and the uh, amount of enemies on screen is pretty impressive. Yeah, and you know
1: what I really love about it as well is couch co-op on there. Um, so it boasts couch, mm. couch co-op in the trailer. Looks like a tough game. I think the concept of it is pretty cool. So it's it's like a mutated mass and everything it touches kind of, it mutates into enemies, um, including like trains and tanks and helicopters. So like a lot of the enemies are like organic helicopters with like big teeth and stuff like that because of they, they've been like mutated, I guess. Hence the name Iron Meat, uh, which is pretty mm. cool. And then it's got a real kind of pumping metal soundtrack, uh, which is probably quite part of the reason why it got me going, like a real synthy metal soundtrack which I think just sounded awesome and it's being published by uh, RetroWare Studios uh, who we spoke about a few times, the, the Angry Video Game Nerd Games and they're doing the uh, yeah. Toxic Crusaders game that comes out later this year yeah, It's
2: it's not out yet but um, there's no. a demo a demo available on Steam and one cool thing that I like about it is it does split screen co-op, like oh, shed, local yeah. one but then it also does remote play together oh, as well so you've that's got cool. like the two worlds where you can do local split screen or Get your friend online as well.
0: And the main character looks like Robocop, which for me is yeah. a, obviously a bonus. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so.
2: But yeah, proper 80s vibes, but, you know,
0: HD awesomeness. <laughs> yeah. I just want this to come to the Switch because, I mean, it's PC only at the moment. Yeah. It's really so at home on the Switch, wouldn't it? Which, you know, might happen if it does well yeah, yeah. on Steam, I'm sure. So um, you've got a few months to wait. They're not out until October, but obviously you can wishlist it right now. And there is a demo available. So uh, definitely worth a look in. I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, if we're talking about the mid-90s, there was a lot of games that kind of, you know, those kind of early 3D platformers. It was, you know, we've talked about Bubsy 3D before, which uh, wasn't the most best example of that. We also had a Gex 3D. And there's another one that often, I often see this getting lumped in with those two games. This one is actually a really good game. Croc. I thought you were you a fan of Croc back in the day, Joe? I guess You it know wasn't. what?
1: Uh, no, no, I was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I was on mute, sorry. Um, you know what? Like, I, I always liked Croc. And um, my sister had Croc for the PlayStation. Croc Legend of Gabos, uh Gobbo's, sorry. And um, I, I always got on with Croc. And I remember um, <laughs> my friend at school, uh, I shouldn't laugh, but they got they got burgled. And it was like the insurance company like replaced their mm. PlayStation for them with a load of games. And he was really miffed because he had Crash Bandicoot. And then they sent him Croc. And he was like, oh, I've got Croc now. Ugh. And I was like, oh. Oh yeah, Croc. Arrgh. Thinking to myself, like I really like that game. <laughs> I played with my sister. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel for Croc. So I didn't realize it sold so well. The first Croc game sold over three million units for the PlayStation One and Sega mm. Saturn. Um, I think it was a bit of ahead of its time because of it. Kind of got outshined by uh, Mario sixty four because unfortunately Croc's not got the best camera. Um, you know, it's one of these early three D you know platformers. I, I think it edges out the likes of Bubsy three D, but it just wasn't as good as Mario sixty four, unfortunately.
2: And then, yeah, but it know, was Argonaut as well, wasn't it? The yeah, it was did, uh,
1: Star Fox. So. Yeah, it was. It was. Ar- it was by Argonaut Studios, which you know kind of segues nicely into the news. The reason we talk about this. So, about a couple of weeks ago, Time Extension, the uh, you know the uh, the game, the gaming publication, they a fantastic, fantastic public, uh, gaming publication, did a story on Croc, like the history of Croc. And kind of like signed it off with, you know, now let's campaign for a Croc remaster. And the head of Argonaut Studios actually commented on the uh, on on the tweet on the feed, uh, Jazz San, uh, pretty much saying, "Yeah, it's happening. Like we're working on it. It's it's going to oh. happen." <laughs> so oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Jazz
2: is you know the guy responsible for um, Star Fox, but also having those uh, extra chips in yeah. the. Um, you know, old cartridges which actually held. What are they called? I can't remember. Super it's FX like, chips. Super, yeah. yeah, that's Super FX, yeah. And I, I, I feel Croc, you know, is an underrated title. I think Spyro kind of took a bit of yeah. Croc's crown at the time, you know, just with the visuals and stuff. And Crash, of course. I mean, Crash
0: Bandicoot was massive oh, as well. Yeah. Wasn't Crash, Crash killed everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just got yeah. a feeling, that yeah, I think because Croc was such a cutesy character and in that era, you kind of had to have a bit of an attitude kind of character, didn't you? Yeah, they, seen they as tried cool. to
2: get... I don't know, it's weird, they tried to make Croc a bit Tomb Raider-y as well, which is a bit mad with that little backpack and stuff, you know. You can imagine Croc in those he, little, he was, uh, he was in those little hot pants. He was know? definitely like,
1: yeah, you know, uh, well, like I say, my sister had it, you know, and it, it was on cool at school to be playing Croc. You should be playing Crash Bandicoot, as you say, and, you know, Mario 64. So, you know, it's good to see him getting some love. It's speculated that it's going to be a remaster. It's not going to be a remake or anything like that. And people are hoping that we get 1 and 2 we get both of them um yeah it's quite funny because i saw a link here i didn't click on it but it was saying a list of the greatest croc games i was like what well,
2: there's only two <laughs> so,
1: it, it would be
2: good for the switch <laughs> wouldn't it two. you know uh
1: work yeah, really well be, on it that platform it, it would suit the uh, croc games i've just had a click there were seven croc games across the different Whoa, platforms wow seven yeah so there was uh, obviously croc 1 and 2 for the playstation and There was Croc 1 on the Sega Saturn, but there's like Game Boy Color versions of it by the looks of things here. Of course, there's
2: there's also Croc Pinball. There's always a weird pinball.
1: Yeah, Croc (laughs) Pinball, Croc Croc Jungle Rumble, Croc Mobile Panic. So, uh, you know, there was quite a few of these mobile games as well. Uh, So it looks like he got a bit more love than, uh, than I thought, to be fair. So, yeah, long live Croc.
0: Yeah, nice to see that original kind of underrated, you know, game, or, or maybe two, hopefully, yeah. uh, getting the HD remaster and uh, back on new generation platforms. Obviously, no word of a release date or really any more information yet. We haven't got a trailer or anything, but of course, we'll keep an eye on that. And everything else we talk about, you can check out all the news items. You don't have to Google around, I save you the job. Head to the show notes on your podcast app or visit our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to be going back to the BBS with this week's special guest, Al from Al's Geek Lab, in just a moment. Before we do that, just a second to give a massive thank you to this episode's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends of Future Publishing, who, of course, bring you incredible gaming magazines every month, including, if you love our podcast, Retro Gamer magazine as well. Now, the thing about Retro Gamer is, obviously, it covers all the old-school stuff, the stuff that we love and talk about on this show. But if you're into modern gaming and their future gaming as well, Future Publishing actually offer a range of different gaming mags for all tastes, including the legendary Edge Magazine. Now, you're a big fan of Edge, aren't you, Revy?
2: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan, and I've actually got a subscription on this service for it because it is such a good deal. And uh, I like Edge because it's got a bit of retro stuff in there. It's got a bit of modern stuff as well, and it's 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 kind of on the edge. There you go. Mm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, this latest one, they've got an interview with Julian Gollop as well, who um, did UFO Enemy Unknown, which is really good. They're looking at uh, Diablo System Shock as well. Um, Counter-Strike 2, you know, there's there's some really good stuff in there.
0: Yeah, and also the do if you're a PlayStation fan. I know you've been looking at Play magazine, haven't you, Jeff?
2: Yeah, man, I'm trying to get the uh, inside scoop on the
1: Final Fantasy special they've got in there. They're covering Final Fantasy 16, which looks absolutely massive and just graphically looks absolutely stunning. Uh, they're also covering uh, Baldur's Gate 3 as well in there. Um, and also, as we are the Retro Hour, there is a pinch of a retro in there with the Retro Station section. Uh, Where they're covering XCOM 2, uh, Street Fighter 5, a brief history of the Remedy Entertainment, um, which looks really, really fun. But yeah, Play Magazine, um, definitely kind of like I mentioned it earlier on, a replacement for those uh, old PlayStation magazines that came with the demo discs, kind of reliving it there.
2: And uh, talking of retro as well, Edge is covering the uh, Spectrum next, so there's a bit of retro in there.
0: And they've got PC Gamer, you know, if you're a hardcore PC gamer, that's out every month, definitely worth checking out. And of course, Retro Gamer magazine, I mean, the current issue, a big, massive main feature on OutRun 2 celebrating two decades of racing brilliance with the creators that brought Sega's Epic Racer home. The Ultimate Guide to Ghostbusters in here as well. They've got a making of Clockwork Night feature. Uh, the Ultimate Guide to Magic Pockets in there too. So, I mean, if you love gaming as much as we do, and there is just something about, I mean, I've been away on holiday this week. Always take a few magazines away with me. Retro Game is one of them. I know you did the same, didn't you, Joe? It's just nice to have a magazine yeah. when you go away.
1: Yeah, yeah, I. I... Popped into the boots uh, at the airport and got myself a retro gamer and absolutely loved it.
0: Well, that's the thing, because you don't want to miss out. I mean, you're yeah. in the airport, sometimes it's not always there. And of course, you know, we bring you incredible offers on this podcast and they support our sponsors, show them a, a bit of love and it helps out the podcast as well. And check out this for an offer. It is back. Everyone's favourite one where you can subscribe and save up to 86% and get three issues of your favourite gaming magazine for just £3. So that is a pound, pound each. When we say this we're like, really? A quid it's serious.
2: Yeah, what can it, it, you get for a quid nowadays? I don't think I could even get You know like what, a you pint can't pint even go milk, to the, you know
1: you, you can't even go to the pound shop and get anything for a quid anymore.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is amazing. Yeah, we'll take this offer up because we always get tweets down the line. People are going, oh, I've missed out on it. Is it still going. So do it today. Subscribe today. Get your first three issues for just £3. Head to our website, this link that you'll need, you know, to make sure that they know that we sent you. Magazinesdirect.com slash trial. So that's magazinesdirect.com slash RetroTrial. Show our sponsors a bit of love. Treat yourself to these brilliant gaming magazines. And a big thank you to our friends at Future Publishing for their support of our show. Okay, next we're going to be going back into the uh, classic days of online, pre-internet, and uh, also exploring the current BBS scene with Al from Al's Geek Lab, going back to the BBS next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And uh, I'm really excited to completely geek out about all things old school online bulletin boards, maybe a bit of early online gaming as well with uh, one of my favourite documentary makers on YouTube and this is uh, something that anyone that's got an interest in the early days of online needs to check out. I know this has had a bit of a cult following over the last few years, a documentary series called Back to the BBS, so I thought I'd welcome on the creator of that series and you could call him a, a
3: BBS historian, this is Al from Al's Geek Lab, how's it going Al? I am absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for that lovely uh, introduction there, really. It's it's been, uh, I don't think I've ever been introduced as somebody who has created a cult following, but hey, I'll go with it, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I watch a lot of
0: YouTubers and I stumbled across, um, I mean, particularly more so during the pandemic, like I think everyone did, you know, pretty much lived on YouTube for pretty much all of that year. And that's when I stumbled across um, the first installment of your your series that ran for over two years about bulletin boards and uh obviously we'll get into kind of why you made that and uh some of the the things you've learned and a bit of your history as well but one thing i always find quite interesting to find out with our guests is kind of where your personal story began because i know we're talking at the moment you're in new zealand um i'm in the uk i detect your accent's not from new zealand originally though
3: (laughs) (laughs) no no i'm a sweaty sock i'm i'm from (laughs) the uk myself yeah so uh, i lived in edinburgh and glasgow for uh for most of my youth and so it was um, in 2010 I think I decided that um, it was just at the back of the GFC actually and uh, everything in Scotland I mean and in England as well I guess uh, wasn't so great and I thought well let's let's do a plan B and I I headed off to a country where there's know three or four times more sheep than people i thought that would be a nice and (laughs) good idea at the time and i look i'm still here so i guess that's uh, a good idea it's still a good idea so hey
0: well going back to what you know when you were a wee lad in scotland i mean how did you get started with computers then i mean what what was your earliest memory and what got you interested
3: Yeah, I mean, the very first thing that could... I don't even know if it would probably uh, be recognised as a computer was the Atari 2600, which was probably a hand-me-down. And uh, my mother used to play Space Invaders, and so I I naturally loved that. But the first proper computer that we got was a clone um, Turbo XT. So um, that was at the sort of tail end of the 80s, I think. And, you know, Hercules monochrome green screen um i think it was probably eight megahertz or maybe even less it was pretty slow um and but it had a few things my dad bought it second hand from his friend and had a few things on the hard drive that were left over and i i didn't know anything about ms dos it didn't have windows on it it was just text but i i found the manuals the two manuals one was you know in this sort of brown cover and it was a microsoft manual for ms dos 3.2 and it was one for gw basic and i think as a 9 year old or an 8 year old kid i just thought oh i've got to figure this out right I've got to see it. it was like kind of choice you know there was just so many things that i could do with this machine and i thought okay I'll figure out some commands and before long i knew the dir command and i knew the cde command and i was exploring the hard drive one day and i discovered this folder called ls directory called ls uh sorry not ls ll and in ll there was ll.com and that turned out to be leisure suit larry the one of the early sierra games from the late 80s and uh, that was it i mean my my father if he actually knew what i was doing uh, as a young child playing Leisure Suit Larry, he would have not been impressed. But to me, it was absolute. Gold and you know you know
0: you brought a funny memory back for me then because i used to play that as well and do you remember on the introduction screen it asked you a question that only over 18s would know so <laughs> I, I used to go to my dad and be like for my schoolwork, can you just tell me who was like the eighth president of the usa and he'd be like that's a bit random and he'd, he'd give me some answer then i get into the game so uh yeah i think we, we had a shared experience there <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah absolutely and then you could go uh father what's uh what's a prophylactic and then he would yeah. know that something's up <laughs> it wasn't long before i figured out that i think it was alt x um or control alt x something like that got you past those questions and i could get straight in and that was it and eventually i completed the game but it, that was the it, i think if it wasn't for leisure suit larry and you know learning how to use you know the, the standard commands of ms dos then i probably wouldn't have proceeded or prevailed with learning about what an operating system was and then i wouldn't have learned about writing little programs in gw basic and i I just wouldn't have really learned computers now we had a zx spectrum for a while in my own bedroom that was in the living room in the family home the pc there was but the zx spectrum was truly my own computer and so i started doing my peeks and pokes and and all that sort of stuff and and i guess that was also another introduction but that that was really my earliest memories with computers and then over the years i got a 486 and um windows 3.1 and then i built my own pcs and i ended up working for a store in the uk called pc world as a technician and fixing up other people's pcs and uh Seeing what people did with their PCs back in the day was, <laughs> was really scary. <laughs> you know, was, I thought, goodness me, if this is what people do with their PCs, you know, I'm doing okay. You know, I think I've got it. And from then, I think I just grew a confidence of of things IT, and it was kind of written in the stars. I wanted to be a DJ for a while. I mean, everybody wanted to be a DJ, right? But um, that was like, what pays more, DJing or, uh, you know, fixing up computers and, and things like that? So I, I ended up doing the IT thing because it was pretty clear that that was a, a path. I was a bit of a school dropout, really. Um, and so once I figured out that that's what I wanted to do, I wanted to do stuff with computers. I didn't really know what yet. But by then I was like, yeah, this is, this is what it's going to be and this pays better. So I guess by the age of 16, I, I had my my i had my path figured out so yeah i'm glad i'm glad for that i mean i remember you know watching movies like war games
0: when i was a kid and being blown Mm. away at the concept of a computer being able to communicate over the telephone lines to another machine and then when i started buying computer magazines and reading about these mythical things called bulletin board services i mean what kind of sparked your interest initially in in bbs's and where did your, your journey start there
3: You know, um, you hit the nail right on the head there. War Games was such a massive, pivotal movie for so Mm. many people who, I guess, already had an interest in computers. Now, I didn't have a modem at the point in time when I saw War Games, but that XT, uh, the old green screen, had been relegated now to my bedroom as my father had upgraded to a 486. So I had this in the back room and I wrote a program in BASIC to trick one of my mates who came round um, that it had a modem and it was dialing up to a computer that I shouldn't be in it. And I was just taking the piss. But I was like, oh, (laughs) shh, you know, eek, what's going on? And he was like, oh, and he he totally fell for it. It was fantastic. But I think that was kind of the day when I, well, around then, I guess I knew what a modem was. And I was just itching. I was absolutely itching to get my hands on one and i didn't have a telephone line in my bedroom it was on another floor in the in the house the family house but eventually i think one of my friends sort of sold me a 14.4 kbps modem you know uh, really really slow and he sold me it for a, a you know an amount of money that i could afford from my paper round money <laughs> and so i plugged this thing in and i had to wheel the computer which was a big heavy machine down to the kitchen Where the phone line came in and I plugged it in there and yeah I think I managed to figure out that I could hook it up to something and get it get it connected and I think that I'm pretty sure this is very sketchy in my memory but I'm pretty sure the first bulletin board that I connected to uh, was one of these 0891 numbers like it was a premium rate number uh, and it was in the back of a magazine called PC Format, and uh, I don't know if that's still going actually. Um, so I plugged that in and and managed to get on to that, and you know I was very wary of the cost, um, and I was worried about that. But as soon as I got on the system, at that point, I realized that there was this whole realm of computer usage out there which I had never encountered before. So, all the things that I really loved about my computer, the games, the programming, every, even MS DOS itself, I loved. I loved writing batch files and all sorts of stuff like that. But all of that, I just found a whole new dimension. Because the thing is that you have to be aware for all of the listeners who, I guess, were born after that time in, in the age of the internet, there was no ability to email, there was no ability to chat with people. There was no ability to download files nothing like that until pretty much the bulletin board i mean there were other online services but you know before the days of the late 70s there really was nothing and now i'd just gotten i'd found this online world there was something called online and it wasn't the internet it was something else and that was a huge thing so quickly i got in trouble I found a way to send some wire. I think I just bought some wire out of the local electronics shop and ran the wire down the back of the house out of my bedroom window. And it wasn't proper telco cable. I think it was just like two core cable. (laughs) Ran (laughs) it out out of my bedroom window down into the master BT socket and then figured that i don't even know how i figured out how to wire it up into a bt socket i guess you know when you get bitten by a bug you find out things pretty quickly right Trial and error yeah <laughs> punched punched into the master socket and in, in the bt the bt socket which probably wasn't even allowed to be done by non-authorized people uh ran that up as i said and then Got myself a bt socket in my bedroom and then started calling bulletin boards you know quick as i could and a lot of these ones were out of the pages of a magazine so they were high premium rate um calls and if they weren't premium rate calls they were calling from scotland to some somewhere in england there weren't many bulletin boards in in scotland so again that would be charged by bt back in those days at a national rate and that was you know was really expensive so you're talking calls um, you know here in the early 90s upwards of I think the 891 numbers were above a pound a minute and the national rate calls were probably some 50 pence a minute so it's a lot of money when you're you're at your only source of income is a weekly paper rent right and the bills in those days used to come in quarterly. And so you can imagine the shock when I had been hard out using these BBSs, mainly at <laughs> night, so I didn't get discovered and, and didn't have any crossover with people in the house using the same telephone line. Uh, you can imagine the shock and dismay of my parents when the phone bill finally did come in. It was well over 300 pounds. And that was a, that was a lot of money. And I got, I got in trouble a lot for doing that sort of stuff back in those days. But yeah, um, that was my first foray into bulletin boards and dialing them up and having lots of fun.
0: I love that, you know, the, I'm interested in the community aspect of it as well, because today we kind of take for granted that, you know, we're all interconnected and, you know, you can reach anyone, anywhere. We're all on, you know, one, one big network, really. But obviously back then, I mean, bulletin boards, Yes, yeah, stuff like FidoNet that I know you've covered in your, your documentary that allowed, you know, people to kind of email each other via different bulletin boards. But I guess these were all kind of individual communities then, I mean, on, on different boards. How do you kind of describe these BBS communities in their heyday?
3: yeah absolutely that's you you hit the nail on the head right it's really it was they were they were separate little islands in this digital sea and you had to dial up a bbs and you never knew what you were going to get some of these bulletin boards were what i call stock and those were the ones to avoid really if you if your bbs looked stock if you just got a bunch of text and a really rubbish what uh, and i'll can talk about this later but a really rubbish ansi art um or, or the lack thereof then you knew you were probably into a bbs that wasn't really that interesting and then you'd go in and you'd have a look around and you'd see what what the bbs would provide and maybe it would provide text files maybe it would provide some downloads that were shareware um you know these were all what we'd call the lame BBS's. so you'd have a few text files shareware games You know, you could download a copy of Duke Nukem 1 or something like that you know the Apogee side of games that sort of stuff and a few other things like um, mod files which were music modules and I can talk about those in a bit as well but um, you know you could you could download some fairly rudimentary files and you could maybe have a, a, a chat with another uh, BBS user if there was one online but those would be the sort of Rubbishy BBSs, the ones that you didn't want to use. Now, the next sort of stage up would be BBSs which had multiple telephone lines, and those ones you could probably have a, a multi way conference. Now, the thought of having a chat room with multiple people all dialed in and chatting online oh, that just blew my mind away. Now, you know, in the years that followed, you had things like MSN Messenger on the internet, and you could have chat rooms in that, and IRC, and all that sort of stuff. But back then, that wasn't a thing. And so the fact that you could have multiple people talking in real time on a bulletin board was just mind-blowing. And then you had other bulletin boards that ran, like you said, a thing called FidoNet, which was just basically an electronic messaging forum. And you could do two things. One, you could send an, what you know was called yeah, a mail, um, but it was an, basically an email to other BBS users, either locally on that, that same bulletin board or to other bulletin boards anywhere in the world um, via a FidoNet address, so that was also pretty cool. But then Fido, FidoNet wasn't just an email service; it was kind of like Usenet of the internet uh, and an email service all in one. And for those of you who don't know what Usenet is, it's basically a bunch of news groups, and uh, so basically there'd be forums on all sorts of interests. You know, there'd be you know, a forum on Commodore 64s, there'd be forums on art, there'd be forums on any sort of thought or interest that people had. There'd be a different forum you could go on and you could get immersed in these. You could sit reading forums day and night about different interests that you you had. So those were, you know, pretty popular. And yeah, then there were the games as well. Um, And those, the good BBSs had a lot of games attached to them as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, we definitely will get into the gaming aspect of it as well. And You know, there's forums you were talking about then. I mean, I think, you know, my first online experience, I remember spotting an Acorn Archimedes at school that had a modem. Plugged into it in the computer lab. and You uh, lucky man. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I was meant to know it was there. I'd have spotted it one day. And I tried dialing up a, a, a service called Kix. I don't know if you remember that, the Computer Information Exchange.
3: Yes. Yes. Yeah. In the back of my mind, yes, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: that was a commercial service, a bit like Prestel, but it had uh, loads of forums on there. And yeah, I mean, I, I'd kind of dial that up every week in you know, IT classes when the teacher wasn't looking. And uh, I got busted one day. But yeah, it was fascinating just seeing real online interaction you know going on in real time which for me i mean you know that experience you described there it, it kind of blew my mind as well just seeing life happen on the screen almost and um i mean you know when, when you kind of got into the, the scene a bit more i mean did you have any kind of favorite boards that you then regularly visited what were kind of your go-to boards in the early oh, days
3: oh goodness i mean that's <clears throat> i did actually try and find some files and uh and things like that but i I honestly cannot remember the names of these BBSs, but at the time of my life, these things were so important to me and I, I'm surprised that I can't remember because I would be dialing them every day. But I think uh, what, what happened is quickly that phone bill problem Grew out of hand, and I was grounded every other day. You know, I was in trouble at school because I was staying up till three in the morning (laughs) dialing. (laughs) But it just took over my life when I was about thirteen or fourteen, and I think that the answer. I mean, there was two ways to resolve the bill issue. One of them was to do things with the the phone network that you shouldn't do. Um, mm. So, kids, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess these days it's not really a problem because you don't use the telephone system. Um, but the uh, that was one way. How did that the kind of, of
0: work? Was that like phone card kind of hacking and that kind of thing? Was there,
3: oh, that look, in, in these Fido mail groups, like I talked about, there were literally groups specifically for um, phone freaking, which was the terminology used for you know using the phone system for... Uh, nefarious purposes include some of it including getting free phone calls but there was all sorts of stuff like that and I don't know if you remember the old BT phone cards really early back in the day the phone cards were totally non-digital they actually had little etches etched into them by the phone uh, themselves so that they could you know it would tell the the phone card uh, the, the phone pay phone itself how much you'd used off the card well, you could actually um make a little score in them that that failed to work um and it sort of it didn't work every single time but effectively out of a out of a payphone booth a, a phone card one you could get free phone calls with that little hack so we knew about that and bt eventually were on to that and uh they they changed their cards but um for a while that was a really good source of entertainment and i would show the kids at school how to get free phone calls with that but you must must seem like a god to them like oh my god free calls (laughs) well well most kids at that time at high school weren't really into uh phone freaking or 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 bbss that that was just something that that, the i don't even know if most kids were really into doing that they were into playing games and stuff like that so it was a it was a special kind of Kid that was into that sort of stuff and that special kid <laughs> was me. I'd probably have lots of letters after my name these days, but uh, you know, <laughs> at the time it was just it was just good fun. But yeah, so there was two ways of doing it. That was one way of using the phone network, and the other way was a more legitimate method, and that was to run my own bulletin board so that people would call me. And so it wasn't it wasn't really that long before I I think I was helping out at a you know a local pc repair and uh, builder store at that point so i managed to get some like old cpus from them and old hard drives and basically put together enough money to build a pc that i could host a bbs with off my own and and so that was uh that was a revelation and i you know all the files that i could get on you know floppy disks and procure from other friends and stuff like that what we'd call back in the day a thing called sneaker net you'd use your yeah. sneakers as and put your shoes on and go around to your mate's house and copy disks and all that sort of stuff so we'd go around and, and get illegal software basically <laughs> <laughs> Cop, copy all the games and uh i'd i'd stick them up on my bulletin board for people to download these games or whatever and it was a lot about for me it was a lot about files and downloading everything i possibly could and then so people would call my bbs and upload their stuff so that they could download stuff so back in those days you had these ratios and that was pretty common right so in order for you to be able to download stuff from a bulletin board you might have to upload something first and it couldn't be a duplicate of what was already on the bulletin board so stringent measures about all of that stuff but it was so cool like people would actually start calling into my bulletin board and I, I got a bit of reputation back in those days so it was just it was a whole load of fun yeah really it, cool you know,
0: running your own board as well I mean you, you were the sysop then and I remember you know and I've heard stories and f- from people that said you know when you went onto a new board obviously you'd have sometimes a sysop would kind of pop up and say hello and they were you know some people got nervous chatting to the sysop because you know this guy runs the board and then suddenly you're the <laughs> one in control was it a bit of an ego trip as well kind of being the sysop <laughs> of your own board? Look
3: I, I for me um, it was more enjoyable I wouldn't say it was an ego trip but i knew so many sysops that had this strange um yeah ego problem i would i would say it wasn't healthy um and i don't know some of these people would be youngsters they may be 14 or 15 right and and i could kind of get that immaturity but some of them were adults and that was worrying um because they'd be like thou shall not enter before this and that and so they would have whole sorts of you know questions that they would ask you before you could access their bbs and they were really stringent about this so, you know you could have to tell them you know you're you know swear allegiance to the bulletin board and all this—it's we- <laughs> really I, you're nuts. You're like,
0: I just want to download a copy of Legacy Larry. That's yeah, that's
3: <laughs> it. Was, it was—it was kind of weird. But that other thing you were saying about the Sysops chatting with you—that was very common, and I would do that quite a lot, and it was very disconcerting. So just imagine, if you will, for being on the net today, being on the web typing away on Google, and then all of a sudden, Google just disappears, your web browser <laughs> disappears right before your eyes, you'd think that you'd been hacked. But no, no, what's happening is somebody else is breaking into your, your system, you're breaking into your session, I guess, and wants to chat with you. So that was called break into chat. It was it was quite a common thing. And the sysop would just, they could see what you were doing on on their own screen, which is really weird by today's standards but they could see what that you were doing on their bulletin board and they could just break it break out whatever you were doing at that moment whether it was downloading a file or you know in a chat with somebody else or making an email whatever it was they could just break in and start chatting away to you and i guess you were kind of at their behest (laughs) they were like if they wanted to talk to you you had to talk back and yeah the, the bbs sysop was all powerful they could do Whatever they wanted with any of their users, and they could be, I guess, pretty horrible sometimes. Yeah, they definitely had. Well, that I guess ego. the user
0: is literally a guest on your machine, though, aren't they? I mean, they were dialing your computer directly and accessing your disks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That,
3: that's that's very true. And in fact, one of the people on the documentary series uh, "Back to the BBS" that I made, his name's Christian, and his CISOP handle is Meat Lotion, and he's actually in uh, just south uh, south um, west of London. Um, and he came on and he said, you know, when you're a BBS Sysop, even to this day, he runs a BBS as well. And I've kept in touch with him. He's a really great guy. And he said, it, it wasn't, the BBS was unique in a way that when you were, it's like, in, and I don't want to disser- do a disservice, but I am paraphrasing a little bit. But he said something along the lines of, when you're on the web, you're just some anonymous person. When you're on a BBS, you are part of a person's, uh, that's Sysop's home you're knocking on their door and you're taking off your boots and you're going and sitting down on their kitchen at their kitchen and 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 chatting with them you're we are in their house you're on their property and you are you're on their hard drive or the floppy disk drive see looking through the files and using their system so it was a much much more personal thing this was you know it was a bunch of hobbyists really Doing things with their PCs or their Amigas or whatever the machine was, and you were invited to use it, and it's a completely different concept to the the web of today. Even if you set up a web server, you know somewhere, you know it, it's still there is a massive disconnect. You know the closest you get, I, I get, I guess you could probably make of it is that when uh, if you set up a web server and it's a Linux server or something like, that, and it's in AWS or whatever, some server farm somewhere in the cloud, then, you know, if you're, uh, you, the owner of that server is looking at the logs and seeing, you know, the 200s coming up in the logs with your web server, you can tell that somebody with some IP is coming in from somewhere. But you don't know that person's name. You don't know that, where that person's really from. You could find out, I guess. But, you know, all you're really seeing is an IP address and where they where they're connecting from with the bulletin board it was a much much more interactive uh thing uh, and it was just yeah. it was just a lot of great fun yeah
0: when you're lying there in bed next to you know your commodore 64s there and the monitors off and then your floppy disk drive
3: light lights up and you know someone's on your board that's much more intimate than a, a server log isn't it i imagine oh yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. and and when i was running that bulletin board we literally had people who were paging me for chat so my pc out the pc speaker would go off at like three in the morning (laughs) (laughs) so the nerds never slept and neither did i i guess from that perspective
0: And we'll hear more from Al from Al's Geek Club in just a moment, talking about the early days of online gaming in just a second. Before we do that, let's quickly tell you about this episode's sponsor, our friends from ExpressVPN. Obviously, back in the BBS days, we didn't have to worry about online privacy and all that kind of thing, which obviously is a massive concern now. And uh, also one thing that we spend a lot of money on is streaming services. don't know about you guys, but when you talk about how much you spend on Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, I think Star Play is what my missus signs up to as well. It actually costs more than a cable bill.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. And and they've yeah. increased it as well. They keep gradually, yeah. you know, raising the bills up.
0: Yeah, it's a thing. And then you can't share logins as well. So you might be thinking, I'm spending a fortune on these services. But did you know, actually, you're not getting the full value out of them as well? Because if you use our sponsor, ExpressVPN, you can cut back and also save a lot of money every month as well. Now, let me tell you about this. And if you knew that Netflix and services like that often have thousands more shows than you think. Obviously, because of licensing, you don't see them depending on your country. So what you see on Netflix here in the UK is completely different to someone in Italy or America or Australia. But by using ExpressVPN, you can basically change your online location. And ExpressVPN has got servers in over 90 countries that you can pick from. So whenever you run out of stuff that you want to watch, all you do is switch to another country and then it unlocks all the new shows as well. And I rather you often use ExpressVPN to uh, watch American Netflix because there's loads on there yeah. that we don't get over here. It's just
2: like literally you press a button and you connect it, and yeah. there's no lag as well. It's like in HD and uh, absolutely fantastic when I use it. You know, the fastest VPN I've ever used. I've been watching uh, Team America will Police, which is uh, uh, one of the funniest films that I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Batman the Killing Joke as well, which was. Um, A series of comics um, that I used to read, and this is a comic book version of, like, uh, animated series of this. Really good as well. And Mm. um, a great musical and comedy one as well, which is Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny.
0: Hilarious. So if you want to check those out and lots more as well, dead simple, like Ravi said, literally the press of a button, refresh your page, and then all these new shows show up as well. And on top of that, also, you can use ExpressVPN to get discounts. You know, some services, for example, did you know if you bought Netflix in Argentina it costs a fraction of the price. I know some people buy like a YouTube premium in like India, you know, save a lot of money doing it that way as well. And at less than £7 a month, ExpressVPN pays for itself and so much more as well. So it really is a no-brainer. If you want to get more shows and save money while you're at it, why don't you give ExpressVPN a try and let them know that we sent you. Of course, it helps out the podcast. Head to our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash retro. Use that and you'll also get three extra months free on on top of a one-year plan. So use our link, expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thanks to our friends at ExpressVPN for their support of our show. I mean, talking about your board, I mean, you mentioned kind of um, online games and that was kind of a big draw. You know, I remember reading in magazines about, you know, certain boards would have certain games and that would get a lot of people through the door and signing up to that bulletin board. So how did kind of the the BBS... What role did it play in the development of online multiplayer games? And did you have any on, on your personal board? Any that you hosted?
3: Yeah, I think it was uh, it was a huge draw for some people. For me, I I I played a passive interest in games. I was much more about the file aspect of it. But I think every single person with the with access to a bulletin board, whether they were hosting one or whether they were dialing into one, they all had their different uh, purposes for using a bbs and you know i hosted a number of popular games back in the day one of them was called legend of the red dragon and uh, there was other ones called trade wars 2002 baron realms food fight those were you know really popular games and most of them were sort of rpg style games um and then uh, there was a thing called major mud which was really as far as I know, one of the first multiplayer games. So, you know, for the multiplayer aspect of it really to take place, you had to have deep pockets, you had to have multiple telephone lines. So you had to, you know, pay an annual subscription to, or sorry, a monthly subscription to BT back in the day, uh, your telco uh, for those phone lines. Then you had to have multiple modems for every one of those phone lines. And then you had to have basically a serial port breakout So to service each one of those modems. And then you had to have a beefy enough computer to service all of that. So it was a major investment in money to have these uh, multi-line BBSs. Um, and that was you know the next level up. That was you know take it from hobbyist to business. And that's why these 0891 numbers existed or annual subscription bulletin boards existed because you couldn't just um pay for that uh investment from a paper round or something that's you know when it became serious and there were commercial bbs's um and a lot of them were the game ones as well that you could you know dial up and play um with multiple people at the same time and bear in mind that a lot of these were completely just text only and then they had so there was and we can come back to this later on if you want but there's basically two types of text so back back in the day when bulletin boards started so bulletin, the first bulletin board came around in 1978 and it was called cbbs and it was made in chicago one winter's day or week and back in those days modems were really really slow They were 300 bits per second or 30 characters so basically you could see the text just appear on the screen line by letter by letter basically it was really really slow and then so over the years the bbss the the phone lines got better the modems got better so the next speed up i think was 1200 bps and then it was 2400 bps and around the start of the 90s or maybe late 80s was 9600 bps and that was a massive massive big jump in terms of speed and so when 9600 came around uh, or maybe just before then people BBSs started to shift away from just plain text to a thing called ANSI and there was also a thing later on which was much more graphical called RIP. but ANSI was it invited colors and these extra character sets into um into the the norm of the bulletin boards and all of a sudden you know you could do little basic bits of art with ascii text i mean everybody's seen these sort of little pictures that are made out of the characters on your keyboard but then ansi took it to the next level because you could have color and you could have shading and and little extra characters that weren't in the normal keyboard um, characters so they were just it was still text but it, it had a few extras that you could make pictures from and at that point the games and the art on bulletin boards all got a major boost. So if you look at even the the very very popular game Legend of the Red Dragon, that I think had very rudimentary ANSI in it. It had you know you know little bits of pictures in it, but it wasn't it wasn't very sophisticated. The next game on from that was Lord Two, Legend of the Red Dragon Two. The the graphics in that. Were highly evolved. Uh, they still used ANSI, but it was a much more interactive game. You could have it multiplayer, and you you basically moved a little character around the map, and it was animated in a, in a sense. Um, so it was a completely different game dynamic to the the first game. You know where you you basically said, "Oh, pick up stick and go north" and all that sort of stuff. Whereas Lord Two was more kind of analogous to. Um, you know the leisure suit larry the adventure games of the time and it was a it was a a very different game in many respects and i i preferred lord too but most people are they 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 like the classic legend legend of the red dragon and people are still playing that game to this day and i'm not just talking about one or two people i'm talking about thousands of people Awesome. yeah
0: And you know, those ANSI graphics as well. I mean, I, I guess that will kind of be a bit of a bragging rights for your board as well. I mean, you know, when people first logged in, you had those, I mean, some of those artists were incredible. And, you know, even an entire part of your documentary is all about ANSI art and the you know, BBS yeah. artists. And I, I guess just, was there a whole scene around that then? And how would you go about finding like a good ANSI artist? Did, did you implement that on your board?
3: Oh, absolutely. Look, I, I think one of the things that I thought, and I think a lot of people thought in the bulletin board scene was that if you didn't have good ANSI on your board, you were a lamer. <laughs> and that was a big thing, lamer, right? So having a good look and board with lots of cool ANSI was an essential for me. And so I, I could draw a little bit, but I'm really I'm not good not good at drawing at all. So I would use a program called The Draw. And uh, and I got I got reasonably adept at that, but then my bulletin board got fairly popular over the years, and eventually, you know, I could commission other ANSI artists who were much better than I to to draw with their own capabilities, and then all of a sudden, they you know they would it look really cool because I'd have all this extra ANSI art from known and respected ANSI artists. I never got the art from like the very top tier ANSI teams, which. they were really really sophisticated I mean you look at the art (laughs) that he did back in the 90s and you look at it and you go wow this is some really cool art and and you're just amazed because it's um this is text it's still text and you look at it and you go is it though I mean if you you look at it from afar you you would go this is some kind of different thing for sure but you wouldn't initially look at it and go that's text it's very very clever and um what's really awesome and as you can see in that documentary that's the last part of the documentary part eight that took a long time to interview these creative types but um one of the the art groups that are still going to this very day is called blocktronics and they're they're all people who were mainly artists back in the 90s and they're all grown up now and they, you know, they do this as a labour of love. And you look at the quality of the art in the 90s, and I thought that was good. But now looking at it today, you know, they get groups of uh, you know, people to come together, I you mean, know, 10, 20, 30 people to come together and work on these art packs or these really long what are called scrollers. And you just look at these and you go, wow, this is some awesome, awesome art. And I could really appreciate it all day. You know, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned
0: that term scrollers as well. And I guess, you know, a lot of this kind of scene, you know, having these really impressive graphics and wanting to you know not be a lame be elite that kind of a lot of it came out of the you know the demo scene and the the cracktro scene before that as well i imagine and you, you mentioned about having you know pirated software on your board and you know that that was one of my earliest memories of online I, I think it was my my uncle's friend used to dial up all of the the pirate bbss in places like finland and sweden like skid row and fairlight and places like that and he'd always have the latest, latest Amiga games that you could write to a floppy disk for me. So tell us a bit about kind of the, the wares side of the BBS movement. Was was that quite underground then? How did it kind of work?
3: Yeah, it was a bit underground because you needed to be kind of known, right? So these these sysops that had the ego problems, um, some of it was a little bit justified um, because what they would be doing is vetting you as an individual and you would sometimes have to sign uh, off and say, Um, right okay this is my address this is my phone number and the bulletin board CISO or the bulletin board itself would phone you back could phone your number back and verify that they they were speaking to the person that had just signed into the bulletin board and it was all sorts of things that they or mechanisms that they would do to make sure that you were a trustworthy person and you weren't basically going to dob them into uh, the cops um, or the FBI for hosting software which um, I guess was not legit so it was quite common as well to log into a bulletin board and get like a standard zero level of access so you could see the, the the legit stuff and then as you got known by the sysops you could get an extra level up and all of a sudden the BBS would kind of transform into this uh, into this sort of underworld area and all these extra file areas would appear and all this A playground
0: extra- <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah It'd be like <laughs> this badass stuff and then I mean it got really some of them were a bit scary to be honest with you i mean it was mainly done by pimply faced youths you know um who were just larking about but some of the times you we could log into a bbs and then eventually you'd get this extra level of access as i say or you'd you'd stumble across a, a bbs through you get being told by somebody else oh check this other bbs out and you'd log in and some of this stuff was a bit strange you know it was a bit cult or it was a you know some of the you had um a thing that was really popular just out of notoriety, more than anything else, was called the Anarchist's Cookbook. Uh, like I wouldn't say what it was, but I mean you can you can Google it and you can find out what it was. And and that sort of stuff scared me a little bit. I was like, mm, I don't I don't like the look of this. Um, so that was stuff that I would certainly never host on my bulletin board. But yeah, you the, there was all sorts of stuff, and and so trolls and 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 individuals like that and would post up stuff on bulletin boards. It, it's as old as time, you know. But uh, I think. Over time, bulletin boards um, hosted so much of this you know, illegitimate software uh, that eventually the, the authorities started to get wise to it, and a number of them over the years, especially in the sort of mid-90s. So the 80s, it wasn't really a thing, but in the early to mid-90s, bulletin boards started getting closed down, and, and the FBI in the, in the US were very much at the forefront of this and i don't really think a lot of the fbi really fully understood what what they were doing when they were shutting down these bbs's because they were taking away computer systems and they didn't really understand what it was they were doing they just had big warrants to t- seize all property and they were a bit heavy-handed but um there was a bulletin board, and this is the most high profile i think of the time and there was a bullet board called rusty and edie's and around sort of i think it was early 90s i think it was 93 if uh, if memory serves that they were raided by the fbi um under t- and charges of software piracy and it, an investigation went on for months in cooperation with the software publishers association which basically sided with the fbi in the end it was a bit of, it was a bit of a shame because the spa were supposed to be on the side of the uh, the bbs's um at some points anyway but basically they were done for copyright infringement in response to a charge set by playboy um so they were hosting gif gif images of all things um which apparently had uh, images from playboy magazine that had been scanned in or something like that but uh, yeah settlement was reached and it was dismissed out of court um later on in the 90s i think it was in court for years So, yeah, it it was a thing, you know, um, and and a lot of people got scared. And I think that was kind of one of the things that stopped the underground scene getting to the next level, which it could have got even bigger. But at that point, once these charges started to shut down some BBSs, there was less flagrant disregard for the law and there was a lot of BBSs that either shut down Uh, Because he got scared and they were probably kids hosting these things or they went super, super underground. And so there was a, a, you know, a clique. And if you weren't in that clique, you didn't get the telephone number to that BBS. So it was, you know, you had to be in and very, very trusted before you could dial into them.
0: It's even over here, I remember reading, you know, in, in this based magazines, like Grapevine, you know, I used to read regularly, and they were talking about how, uh, you know, the, the Federation Against Software Theft Fast, they were called here in the UK. Yeah, they, yeah, I remember they,
3: that, that's right. Yeah, you remember the
0: adverts in magazines and stuff, and then they would, uh, they'd eventually start raiding BBSs, but yeah, I remember reading stories about how, like you said, they didn't really know what they were taking, they'd even take like, you know, byros and rulers and stuff and desks and you know, anything that was in the computer room to take away for six months. So yeah, I guess, you know, you wouldn't be that popular with your parents if half your bedroom went missing, you know, to, uh, to the police. So
3: <laughs> it wasn't me, mum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: so I remember out of that, obviously, I remember a lot of groups kind of going legal at that time and moving away from wares and kind of the, the online culture and the demo scene kind of taking over as well. So how did you kind of see that shift then? And I mean, I know you've, you've done parts on your, your documentary Serious about this as well be the, the online culture and the demo scene tying into the bbs
3: yeah um i think you know the the internet was probably starting um around the days when the demo scene were taking off but because of this kind of edgy feel to bulletin boards um and, and bear in mind when i say the internet i don't necessarily mean the world wide web the the web wasn't Uh, Available until, let's just say, I mean, it it was a thing that had been constructed in 1993 by Tim Berners Lee, but it wasn't really available to most people until the the sort of late 90s, so 96, 97 sort of time. So the bulletin boards were the perfect hosting ground for the demo scene because it had that kind of edgy feel right the ANSI graphics were always like kind of things like skulls and crossbones and you know just things that really looked um a bit scary when they probably weren't but you know they kind of had that feel right and and so these demo scene groups really loved that kind of underground feel so not only was it the perfect marriage for the wares scene it was also a really good marriage for people in the hacker scene and the demo scene. So these demos were just amazing. Um, and so they, they had these as they were artists as well. So the art within in the ANSI scene. There was the, the demo scene. And so they grew up distributing the demos. So you'd get, um, I think they were called runners or something like that. So you get this specific people within a demo group that would go off and distribute the new demos or demo packs that the uh, the demo um, the demo group had made, and they would l- just basically go out and upload these new demos to different de- uh, bulletin boards across the world, and it would have cost them, I guess, quite a, a fair amount. But that was really an an effort in early marketing because if your demo was out there on bulletin boards and these bulletin boards were you know popular boards, then your demos would be known by all parts of the world far and wide and so I think one of the groups that were really good not only at making really really good demos but also uh, a group that were uh, really good at marketing their brand was a a Finnish group a demo group called Future Crew and um, they really started in the very late 80s and then you know they uh, they eventually had their own uh, bulletin board in Finland but they they were they had yeah prolific sharing by followers but also by their runners on on the on the BBS networks and so their demos were absolutely everywhere and their their demo second reality is probably one of the well, it's probably one of the biggest demos of all time. Anyway, um, it's very well known, but it's also one of the ones that was shared absolutely prolifically on the BBS days, and that was kind of like it was a symbiosis that went on. And and yes, so f- other f- other demo groups that were really popular as well was Fairlight and the Black Lotus and Farbrush, Andromeda Software Development ASD, Melon Design, Orange Complex, um, lots and lots of really good Am- Amiga and PC demos as well so it was yeah it was so good to to get on a really good bbs with all these great demo groups launching their their first demos or their their big demos onto these bbss
0: yes yeah, it was kind of like a form of early viral marketing wasn't it really because i mean you know you'd want to have these amazing demos everyone was talking about on your board
3: yeah and if you yeah. were the ones if you were the board that had the first demos uh from a group like if you were The board that got the files first or if you were the board that got the the wares first or whatever you know if you were one of those ones that got the first uploads then your notoriety as a as a good elite board it became well known and then it the sky was the limit at that point you were the sysop you were you know the man usually it was a man unfortunately (laughs) it was not much diversity it was kind of white um, white males usually boys you know that was just a way of it back then but um, you, you were the king if you got the if you got the first dibs on all of that stuff
0: well you mentioned about the you know the internet kind of coming along in the, the mid-90s and um, that was such a big change and how did the bbs scene change with the advent of the internet
3: yeah um i think it was it was one thing that some people were ill prepared for and some of them uh, some of the the BBS uh, sysops did adapt, um, but it was it was such a change. I mean, you you think about it. If you've never used the BBS before, then it's hard to define just what it was. But really, it was it was a completely different platform. The way of interacting with people felt so alien when the internet came along. For me, it felt much more anonymous, right? And I think that was something which I. I think a lot of SysOps really struggled with. And um so we entered onto this online world on the internet and we used FTP to download our files. There was nobody to say thanks and there was nobody to upload files to again. And, and then we downloaded our graphics and our and our stuff like that. And we went onto IRC chat and we went on to other platforms as well. And I think, you know, because of that animosity, people thought, oh well, we can get our stuff on the internet and There was a lot of things in play as well at the time, like the the wares aspect of it was also crippling the the BBS scene and a lot of people were just kind of between two worlds. So it became a very difficult stage for the bulletin board and so eventually the bulletin board scene kind of died off and that was a a slow, painful death. It wasn't like something that happened overnight. It really started around, I would say, 97, maybe even 96, but probably 97, 98 and then went on till about maybe even 2002, 2003. It went on for a long time. And it, yeah, it was, you could see the remnants of what was on the BBS scene in the internet. But really, um, because people had to dial up to a bulletin board and they, you know, they had to spend a lot of money to do so, it was like, well, if I can just go on the internet, I've got everything I want at the touch of a button and I don't have to, you know, dial up multiple different bulletin boards and, and, you know, get files from everywhere else or speak to different people in different places. And so it just made sense that the internet was going to win out in the end. There were a lot of sysops who ran, you know, expensive bulletin boards with multiple different lines at the time. And eventually they kind of swapped and they would run a bulletin board, but they would also run a web host. And so, so those were the bigger, more commercial bulletin boards. Um, So they, they would kind of carry on and did that for a while. And eventually, I think in the cases of some of the ISPs, the ones that were quite well known at the time, I don't, I don't, maybe it was Demon. I don't know for sure. But there was, there was some UK based ISPs that were well known for a long time. They started out as BBSs and then they migrated into ISPs. But yeah that that was it was a slow death. It was pretty it was pretty sad, but um, I guess all good things have to end. And of course the the lure of the internet was a mass appeal because it was you know Windows 95 had come out now whereas you know people of the BBS era were were used to doing it at the command line, right? They were DOS users and and you know maybe maybe some of them had graphical experience on the Amiga mostly it was text and there was the, the interface on bulletin boards some of them could be archaic they were pretty much text or ansi graphics at the best so when you went to the web and you went to the internet a lot of these things were in windows 95 or way well, even windows 3.1 but they were graphical um, and were much more user-friendly in that regard
0: well you know the bbs scene obviously kind of faded away as the 90s went on but i mean today you know kind of bringing it forward to the, the modern day you know there's websites like telnet bbs guide that i'm looking now they've got nearly a thousand active bbs's that you can access even you know on your retro machine via or you can go via telnet you know on, on your web browser today really simple to access and there seems to be yeah. more and more of these coming along all the time i mean what's kind of the appeal do you think of using a bbs today when we've got you know facebook and twitter and all these advanced social media platforms why do people see the appeal of a bbs well
3: that's it exactly and and i was really that was the question to me that was really interesting. It was key because I had a lot of fun back in the day, but I had kind of thought, hey, the the BBS is a thing. It's a relic of the past. It's not interesting anymore. And that's that. But then I happened across things like the Telnet BBS guide. And I was thinking that there's got to be something to this. There's literally over, there's thousands of BBSs. And so then I started to go into this and I thought, why? What's all of this about? So I started telnetting into these BBSs and and getting the feel for it. It was not before long that I thought, I need to document this. I need to say why this is happening. So that's what led to me making the documentary series Back to the BBS. And the, the subtitle of Back to the BBS is The Return to Being Online, because we are returning in an essence to the first form of online. The reason for this is that, you know, when we first started out in the web back in 96 or, you know, the late 90s, basically, it was quite good fun. We basically got to make the Internet our own. It, there was lots of different corners of the Internet and there wasn't really huge, big corporations running it for us. Right? You, I think the biggest corporation was Yahoo and Google weren't even around Um it was it was it was a few years before Google came around, and again they were just a small organization running out of a garage at the time. So you know there wasn't big corporate in the internet. So things like GeoCities, where we could go in and make our own little websites, and a, a lot of the web and the internet it was was personal interest kind of stuff. It was it was a lot of good fun in the early days. Fast forward into you know the mid two thousands or you know yeah you know, that sort of time I guess maybe. 2010 I guess when we're in that sort of era we've got big conglomerates we've got Facebook we've got Twitter we've got Google we have got Microsoft lots of big names and if you think about the time that you spend on the internet a lot of the time is with those big companies right it's not this little personalized corner of a digital life anymore and it's, it's a great tool but I think one of the interviewees that I spoke to um, in in one of the uh, in- interviews of the, the Back to the BBS series, Daniel Kelly, he described it as that his computer and the internet, by extension, had just become another tool. It wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't like this thing you'd go on, and you just couldn't wait to go on, and all your friends would be there. It'd be like going, you know, it's like cheers. Everybody knows your name. And it was a lot of fun. That the the fun had been taken away and it was really, it was really sad. And and I felt exactly the same way. And I couldn't I, I didn't know what was missing. I just kind of accepted it. You know, it was just, oh, I am using the web, I'm using Facebook, I'm using Twitter today, but that's it. And I thought this BBS stuff, it's still a heck of a lot of fun. And I was logging back into them. And I wondered if it was just nostalgia. But then I realized that there was a whole community of people out there and it wasn't just for nostalgic reasons we could talk about everything and anything it was in you know, all sorts of interests you know i was talking about movies and diet food you know like all sorts of stuff and and it was that real close feeling once again where you're in somebody's kitchen or in somebody's bedroom talking to friends playing these old games and just having a laugh and it was it brought a smile to my face and and i felt like i'd returned home after a twenty-plus year sort of um, absence, and that—that that is it. That's exactly why I decided that it was time to, you know, to share this good word and bring people along who probably never even witnessed the bulletin board. It was—it's something that you know you have to be of a certain age. You have to be born in the the seventies or the eighties to really know what the bulletin board was. And then I started finding out that there were people out there. Who were young, who were in their teens now, and so I interviewed uh, a few of these um, young users, and I, I, I asked them, I said, "A, how did you find out about bulletin boards? And B, you know, why are you keeping them coming back?" And they are saying the same things. They've got disillusioned with the internet of today, and they wanted to find a different outlet for the stuff that uh, that interests them, and and so that that's a really awesome thing. Yeah, and there's
0: great communities. I mean, you know, when I was watching, when I first started watching your, your documentary series back in 2020, I, I think I watched the first two parts and I had my Amiga 4000 set up next to me with, a, I've got an Ethernet card in there, but it's got like a serial emulator. So I was telnetting into a load of BBSs and anyone that came up on your screen, you know, uh, anyone that was still active, went, I'll try I'll check their boards out as well. And it was just great fun. You know, really, it was rather than being on my my PC when tweets are popping up or facebook messages are coming over what I'm doing just having this dedicated service with a a dedicated community i mean it's it's still all there and it's still as as interesting i think as it ever was so yeah, implore anyone that you know hasn't dove into it to absolutely watch your series. I mean, it's a massive eight-part documentary series. that took you uh, over two and a half years to put together, and it's incredibly well produced. So I'll um, I'll link up obviously all you know the, the playlist in our our show notes as well. And sometimes, Al, I wish that this was the the retro two hours, not an hour, because this is absolutely <laughs> flown by. But just <laughs> just, just to kind of. Yeah, I mean, we could easily do another two or three hours with you because it's such a fascinating subject. But just to wrap things up, I mean, yeah, you've actually returned to being a sysop op again today, haven't you? You now run your own bulletin board. So tell us a bit about going back to that.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I thought it would be the perfect companion uh, to the bulletin board series. And I, you know, I thought, nah, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to spend the time to sit down and Build a bulletin board again. It's uh, it's not not something I'm going to do. But as the time went on, it got bitten by the bug again, and I set up the bulletin board with a piece of software called Mystic. There's also Synchronet out there, and there's lots of other pieces of software now which are even newer, which are you know they don't have any legacy. There's some written in mod- modern languages like JavaScript and uh, Node. Uh, so there's uh, yeah, there's lots of software out there if you want to start up your BBS in the modern age that one run perfectly in windows linux or mac and so yeah i already had a server that was doing a few things on the internet so i thought right i'll just stick the software on here put up some stuff make some ANSIs. and yeah it has become a companion to the documentary series but it's also you know a a perfectly vibrant bbs in its own right and you know i've got i've made some apps for it as well which do api calls so made one that um you know, at the time when um, cryptocurrency was a huge thing, I made a little app, which basically—I um, say app—it's—it's it's called a door um, or a mod. It connects out to the internet, pulls down the um, the the crypto information from I think it's uh, CoinGecko API, pulls that down, and then presents that information with an ANSI graphic, so you can you can track the crypto market in uh, in real time. So th- there's stuff like that which provides a marriage between the internet of today and the BBS days of old. So it keeps it kind of relevant. And that's mm. that sort of scene, that sort of uh, marriage is not just exclusive to my BBS. It's, it's across a lot of BBSs. You can get up the weather for your local uh, local area on my BBS as well. You can do all sorts of things that you couldn't do back in the day. So I think that's been a lot of fun to to learn that sort of stuff over again. And of course, I've joined it to the common networks such as the the FidoNet and FSXNet, which is a new network, which um, again, it's, it's you know kept up to date and there's not, not many trolls on that one. It's quite good. So I quite like FSXNet.
0: How do people get access to your BBS if they want to check it out?
3: Yeah, if they want to check it out, um, they can just use, um, uh, there's a few, you can use just standard Telnet, but for the best experience, there's a number of um, software that you can download free of charge One is called SyncTerm, S-Y-N-C-H-T-E-R-M And another one's called Netrunner Both work pretty good So you yeah, just go online, Google that And download it, um, it's a tiny piece of software And then you can, um, I think the, the address to my BBS Is bbs.alsgeeklab.com And you can use port 2323 for uh, Telnet And I think 2222 for SSH connections as well so yeah you can get it that way
0: obviously i'll put links to everything we talked about in our show notes been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for coming on and uh did a bit of reminiscing with us about the the bbs days and long may it continue
3: pleasure's all mine thank you so much dan